Welcome to the Untangling Web3 podcast, your go-to hub to learn insights and the latest developments in the wild and wonderful world of Web3. I'm Alec Burns. And I'm Jack Davis. Tune in each week as we navigate and explore the rapidly emerging landscape of the Web3 technologies, projects, and ideas that are shaping the future of the internet. We'll be talking to the best and brightest in the industry to keep uncovering insights. So that hopefully we can all learn together on our journey to untangle Web3. Welcome to another episode of the Untangling Web3 podcast. Hey, Alec, how you doing, buddy? I'm good. I'm very good. How are you today? Yeah, yeah, very well. Feeling good. Um, excited for this week's one, as I always say. But, you know, this is another exciting topic. So, uh, yeah, how about you? Yeah, I mean, it's nice and sunny outside. You know, how else would I want to spend my evenings rather than you know, sitting inside talking about some interesting topics with you, Jack? Yeah, I'm already excited for the winter, so I won't feel the... Uh, uh, the sadness and remorse at doing this with you instead of being out in, in the world so <laughs> yeah, which is tragic as soon as you say winter my mind goes to like crypto winter <laughs> like that's where we're at right now <laughs> that's the first thing that comes up yeah. in my mind yeah i guess it is winter and you know it's always winter somewhere but definitely in crypto <laughs> or as um, robert said uh, apocalypse i think <laughs> yeah yeah that was super funny i liked uh, i liked robert's uh robert's fairly scathing take on web3 was interesting yeah. so today we are broaching arguably the the hottest topic in tech right now and the one that has taken the wind out of the sails of web3 in many ways so we're talking about artificial intelligence um you know what what, what do you have do you have any opening thoughts around artificial intelligence alec oh so many opening thoughts i mean the very fact that chat gpt is like an integral part of this show like we use it heavily for a lot of the things we do not just like mm. the definitions and some of the explanations but also some of the marketing pieces we use chat gpt it's just so good at these things but i use it day-to-day -day life like the amount of like applications i'm using it for it <laughs> in work out of work like replying to my mom sending birthday messages so yeah this is a huge topic like you've just said and i think Web3 was kind of maybe one of the, the buzzwords like a few years ago. And AI is, like you said right now, is, is a dominating buzzword in the kind of in, in the news and like normal outlets. And I think now we're starting to see a lot of overlap between how these things align, which I'm quite excited about, to be honest. Mm. Well, I mean, we know your mum listens to the show, so I'm sure she'll be pleased to hear that it's not actually you writing the birthday cards. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, I think this is fascinating, right? That we were both just able to drop in this term chat GPT. And, you know, that's the kind of it's a tech term that this time last year would have been like any other Web3 tech term where you'd have to go through and describe it and explain it. But it's become a household name literally overnight. You know, it, you know, most people will already have an understanding of what that is because it's been all over the news. So, um, yeah, it's, it's a kind of a, a strange one in that regard. But why don't we just begin with you know, winding the clock back a bit and looking at the bigger picture? So. ChatGPT being an example of artificial intelligence or AI. So 
how would you define AI just in, in the simplest terms? Oh, it's going to have to be the simplest terms because it's such a complicated field. I don't think I'm, I'm capable of anything more than the simplest terms. So AI is effectively, I would say, the kind of the simulation of human intelligence. It's how we kind of get or um, kind of help computers or computers actually try and simulate human intelligence. So it's about how they learn, how they understand, how they can process, how they can kind of you know recognize patterns, solve problems, all these kind of make decisions, basically. It's, well, it's an artificial form of human intelligence, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, that's kind of the, when we say that, that's kind of also the, the goal. And I think people get quite scared when you say simulating human intelligence, because mm-hmm. there's a lot of debate around whether that will be truly possible. But uh, it, it can approximate, I would say, in many ways, what human activities, like as we're seeing with ChatGPT, it can do a pretty damn good approximation of writing and, uh, and verbal written communication now. Um, and artificial intelligence is kind of the umbrella term for all these different types of activities that have been around for a long, long time, actually, where you're trying to get computers to do more complex tasks that would have historically mm. been reserved for humans, but now we can automate with with machines and computers. Yeah, and I think I'm glad you talked about the, kind of the history there and how there's been like these two, well, Web3 has kind of developed in isolation with artificial intelligence, and we're going to go into the history now, but artificial intelligence started so long ago, it's no wonder that they've developed in isolation because I think, well, maybe we should go into it right now. Where did artificial intelligence originate from? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's been around for so long. So my, my my kind of research around this took me to around the 1950s. That's kind of the earliest time um, I think artificial intelligence was talked about. But, you know, even to go one step further, when we talk about computers automating difficult tasks that humans would do, then you're going back to things like um, Alan Turing and what you if you've seen the imitation game, I'm sure you have. It's one of yes. my favorite films. Of course, and I love it. Like it's just such such a good film. Like I knew that you'd love it as well. Definitely your type yeah. of film. Uh, so that you know is is a great example because you actually see one of these machines, the one that Turing builds in that in that film. Um, you know, it's this massive mechanical machine, but it's kind of the earliest example of a modern computer. Um, and that, that's kind of interesting as well because he was using that computer to uh, break ciphers to decrypt messages mm. that were being sent by the. The German high command. So even in the 1940s, that's kind of a, an intersection of Web3 and AI, right? Because it's cryptography and the, the, the early kernel of artificial intelligence was kind of interesting. You know, I, I hadn't even thought about that. Like we're going, definitely going to come to it later about how cryptography can actually yeah, kind of apply guardrails to AI. And I think that is a really interesting insight that you've just had. We'll definitely need to go onto it a bit later in the show. But yeah, you're totally right. An insurance paper, he, what was it called? Something like computing machinery. And he introduced the concepts of machines that could simulate human intelligence and this basically set the stage for ai right and i think a lot of people listening right now will be aware of the turing test he basically created this kind of this standard for how to define like a sex successful um, ai or computer systems and it was a sim- quite simply put it was could someone distinguish the difference between a human and an ai in responses so right now, if I was to ask Jack and ChatGPT a series of questions, would I be able to distinguish between who is human, who is not? Well, that would be quite difficult because everyone knows Jack isn't that human anyway. But that's the whole premise of it, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, and just to kind of make one final point about the you know the imitation game and Turing's work, it's 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 interesting to see what was motivating this move to computer 
based tasking or, or uh, trying to get computers to automate things because they were trying to break codes that were being mm -hmm. done by the Enigma machine. So it was a machine bringing capabilities to uh, cryptography and being able to create highly secure messages that motivated the need for, well, we need computers to fight back. We needed to automate the task of decrypting them. Um, but yeah, so that's kind of, that's that's the first kind of data point in AI in my mind. And then around uh, you know, 10, 12 years later, there was this famous conference, the Dartmouth conference in 1956. And that I think that's the first time that people started using the word or the term artificial intelligence to describe mm -hmm. what we're what we're talking about here. Yeah, yeah. And then I think okay, another cool event that happened maybe like a few years after that was there was this um this Eliza, this Eliza program. Are you aware of this one, Jack? By someone I actually not Joseph. no no, what's this? So it was this um this guy called Joseph Weisenbeim, which I've almost definitely just butchered the butchered. pronunciation of. <laughs> yeah, butchered. Um MIT. And it was the one it was the first version of like a natural language processor. And it was capable of basically mimicking human responses. And they simulated um, a psychotherapist, basically. And people really struggled to kind of distinguish between the two. It's quite like a, a groundbreaking kind of first attempt at, attempt at natural language processing. Obviously, to compare that now with where we're at with ChatGPT, it's come on leaps and bounds. But it's quite exciting to see they were thinking about this, you know, 40, 50 years ago already. Yeah. And what, what, what's that um, the term you use there, the natural language processing? Well, what's that referring to? Uh, we're already going to get into the detail, right, of the different like subsets. Why not? Oh God! So I mean, natural I mean, language just not at the detail level, but yeah, just like what is the, at the highest level? What's that term mean? Because it's, it's one that is is something that I've come across, but I don't fully understand. I don't think. So I, it's just a subset. I mean, there's like lots of different types of artificial intelligence. You've got some types that just match patterns, so can very like take a, a, a lot of data and just start to find patterns. You know, like very simply, if I get a lot of different fruits, um, I could just give all the fruit. To an artificial intelligence and it would say you know some of these are looking red and circular these might be tomatoes or something like that some of these are looking yellow and long these might be bananas so that's like a, a pattern recognition natural language is kind of well it's human language and the patterns it's recognizing is kind of the association between responses and answers so if i right. put some natural language prompts it will chat gpt will scour the internet and try and find the answers that are associated with the, the, the inputs, which is the question right. I put in, you know, if I'm like, so okay, it's like, I've got, you go. Yeah, I was just, that's like, uh, so it's like specifically text-based tasks, that, is that right? Yeah, exactly. So like, if I ask a question like, oh, I've got these symptoms, what's wrong with me? It will scour the internet for the, the inputs, the processes that I put in, like, you know, I've got a cold, I've got a high temperature, it will find all the different responses on the internet and then, you know, using mathematics, statistics, basically, it will come up with the most probable answer by correlating all of those, um, all of those prompts together. Mm -hmm. Nice. Yeah, okay, that makes more sense then. Um, and then the other type that you were describing with, the, you know, recognizing this is an apple versus this might be an orange, that's a kind of different category to natural language processing that is like um, different type of pattern recognition that is more, you might call it computer vision sometimes, right? So being able to detect um yeah. spatial visual patterns in, in data yeah exactly and i think um, so i actually did uh, a tiny bit of pattern recognition we were working on this cool project around like it's like pothole detection type stuff and we did some investigation to you basically you know give it vast amounts of data sets and say you know these are potholes these aren't potholes i want you to work out what the patterns are underlying that and then test it out on some training data and like it's it's really impressive like it's really impressive okay. 
That's better but, than my current pothole detection system, which is my tires, which just go flat every few months <laughs> when I drive through one. We we've got very ahead of ourselves though. We were only yeah. in the nineteen sixties. We're in the weeds. <laughs> we're in the to, weeds. Let's go back to the sixties and the seventies. Okay. Okay. So I was just talking about that impressive Eliza project, and that's where the term natural language processor came from. Um, yeah, that was quite an, an exciting step, and I think just after that, if I'm not mistaken it seemed that there was a bit of a, a, a kind of a low tide in the AI development space. And I think they def decide, defined it from like the 1970s, the first AI winter, where there was a lot of optimism, a lot of expectations, but there was a lack of substantial process. And that led to a lot of decrease in the interest of AI funding. And a lot of AI was then kind of maybe channeled towards um, logistics, but medical diagnoses, like even then they saw like there was actually a lot of tangible use cases um, during this time period, just a lot less funding in the space. Mm -hmm. So like in the, in medical diagnosis, you, it's kind of, that would be trying to predict uh, based on some certain risk factors, some data points, yeah. you know, about someone's health, they try and predict the likelihood of some yeah. uh, condition, right? So like, I, I mean, I have a friend that was, she's a radiographer, um, shout out to her. And she, so they're using the AI in like scans for cancer and things like that is exactly the process I've just described. You know, we have vast data sets of scans that we know in the end do, are cancerous and scans that we know aren't cancerous. And mm. um, maybe we don't know that in advance, but we can put all this data into like a, a, an AI, one of these pattern recognition AI models, and it will start to associate the patterns between the two and come up with like absolute like incredible stats like incredibly kind of accurate predictions of whether a scan is cancerous or not cancerous mm. way in advance of, of a human and they're using this now and she's using this now and there's like it's it's incredible there's sometimes they don't even know but they just know like they need to do more tests like, they can even filter you know because right. ai can be so cheap to run once it's trained you just put these scans through and then it's okay there's a 90 percent probability that this is cancerous and then you just have more advanced maybe human um, deep tests after that but like yeah like i said i mean it makes so much sense in the medical space to, to be using ai right now especially for the pattern recognition stuff hmm. yeah i mean it's, it's so interesting that you say like in the 70s there was an ai the first big ai winter and you know even where, even though the applications and potential is so obvious based on what you're saying there and for anyone who's in web3 experiencing their first web3 winter you know ai have <laughs> had way more they've had you know they've been having these peaks and troughs in interest and growth in for a much longer time so it's kind of it speaks to the fact that these you get these winters in different technologies um mm. kind of part of the the natural the natural uh, adoption cycle and, and progression cycle of technology in general which is uh which yeah. is interesting to see right and i think part of that that ai winter kind of overlaps with like you know a lot of the aspects that we're talking about in web3 it was that a lot of the data was siloed, you know, there wasn't that much data that was widely available to these models. And we're seeing that, you know, the models, uh, their success really is heavily based on the amount of data they have access to. And we're going to come to this later when we talk about how Web3 overlaps with AI and, and, and vice versa. But I think that was one of the, the main reasons why there was this kind of uh, lack of progress because there was, it was really hard to access like lots and lots of data. And I think when we saw the kind of the renaissance of AI start to come back in like the early 2000s, it was because there was a lot more access to data, mainly because of like, you know, Web2 companies, people accessing the internet and all this kind of stuff that we'll talk about a bit later. But just before we get to that, one other event that I did want to mention was like, just as we're, they were coming out of the first AI winter, there was this, um, this IBM 
chess player computer, Deep Blue. Are you, mm. you aware of this one, Jack? Yeah, I remember this. This was a, this is one of those fabled kind of stories you hear about, isn't it, in, in AI? Yeah, but I love it. It's so interesting. Like, it's just iconic, right? And, and basically, IBM made this AI that could play chess and called Deep Blue. And they pitted it against this um, the, the world chess champion at the time, Gary Kasparov. And he, he lost. So the, the IBM AI won. And his quote after was, chess is over now. Now, why would anyone want to play chess when an AI can just do it better than them? Yeah. Uh, well, that that's really interesting, right? Because obviously that hasn't borne true as 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 I think as an you know like chess is, is about as big as it's ever been. It's such a it's, mm. a it's a global it's a global game that everyone knows, and you have all these apps that you play you play chess on now. And I think that is again a, to talk about technology in general and similar to what we see in Web three. Um, when when these things come along, there's there's always some kind of reticence to you know there's there's, there's fear about what that might disrupt. Um, and, and and things that it might um, you know ca- cause issues for, quite, and quite rightly, it makes sense that people uh, people are kind of conservative in the sense of you know what are we going to lose out instead of seeing the, the potential benefits of it. And AI is a, a kind of good example of that. Where it, it, so far the things that people were worried about in the eighties, nineties haven't quite um, haven't quite come to fruition, but now lots of the beneficial applications are actually starting to come through. Yeah. And I get that. Like, I completely get it. Like, it's, a, it's an economic impact, right? And I think one of the things that's scary about AI is the rate of change. It's, mm. like, very difficult for someone to control. It's not like, you know, mechanical. I mean, you know, Moore's Law, exponential increase and all this kind of stuff. But AI just seems even more exceptional than Moore's Law. Like, it, mechanical advancements are slow. There's lots of testing, whereas AI just seems like it's going to advance at a completely unpredictable and uncontrollable rate. And the job market potentially could be you know completely affected instantly overnight by it and governments won't be able to react in time i think that's one of the fears that comes in but again we're getting ahead of ourselves we're still in the uh, early 2000s i think so what happened after so we had this uh, this incident with gary kasparov decided to put ai back on the map and i think you know in the early 2000s we were coming to this ai renaissance that um we started to mention and we actually got like more and more usability people started to kind of have AI more in their lives. Like one of the first instances that I was aware of, like a, an AI device in in the world was the Roomba, you know, that came out in 2002. And people were using these little automatic vacuum cleaners with a bit of AI intelligence around them to path plan around the rooms and stuff like that. And they yeah. were crazy. Like I remember when they first came out, I was like, my God, this is like, this is unbelievable. I feel like I'm in a film. <laughs> that would be like the, an example of that kind of um, computer vision pattern recognition of in, in the spatial world, right? So it would be, mm. you know, uh, taking scans or se- sensing um, using sensors to scan the environment and then recognizing, oh, I'm about to bump into a cat or a wall or something and then changing yeah. action after that. Yeah, yeah. So this is my area. Like my area used to be like path planning and robotics and all this kind of stuff. So that's, that's one aspect of it, the, the computer vision. I mean, Rumbas didn't really have much computer vision in them. One of the main things was around like path optimization. You know, I've got a room. I know roughly what it looks like in a, in a 2D map. How do I optimize how quickly I can clean this? And how do I get around people to make sure, you know, I clean this section at this section, you know, this section this time, sorry, and, and maximize my output, which is to clean the room. So it's quite simple right. in that sense because there's not many not many parameters you know it's like 2d yeah. and it's very simple to get around i've only got so much input i can do that's interesting i mean i, I don't know the, the technical workings of rumors but w- was there an element of 
it would learn every time you set it around the, the house? Would it learn to optimize every time it went? Because that's a big part of AI, right? It's optimizing the performance of the algorithm that's doing the prediction every time you yeah. add more data, every time you use it. So um, not so much the early ones, but now, yeah, definitely. It's a lot around like the effects. Like they can, some of them can monitor how much dirt they're finding or how messy a room is and be like, okay, well, this, I know from previous experience that this part of the room is very messy after dinner, um, you know, every day. So I'm going to really go to the kitchen after dinner every day because I know it's super messy there. It's simple things like that. Oh, wow. and, like, the new rumbas and cleaning devices, they, they log all that data. They know when to clean what parts of the room. And it's super exciting. We actually had um, a programmable rumba in my old um, my old robotics lab and like one of the things was how can you optimize like the path planning it sounds really boring and tedious but it's like a really fun way to learn these things yeah that's really cool you'd never guess that there's so much going on inside them as well when they're when they're just moving yeah. around um, <laughs> this just looks so dumb right really just cool. bumping into things constantly yeah yeah it's like i, I always presume it was just uh back in the day i presume it was just it would bump into something and then it would just randomly pick a new direction <laughs> and hope for the best that's what it looked like but yeah 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 that, that's definitely there's a uh, there's this rule where it's like um you bump into something that was one of the first things we tested in the programmable rumbas that we did it was like you just bump into something and when you hit something you turn right and then just go forward until you bump into something else like the turn right rule we called it okay well uh, very very uh ingenious naming convention you got there um <laughs> So, yeah, and then, you know, we're talking about the early 2000s, maybe kind of early 2010s as well. And I think that's, as you say, that's when we saw a lot of the first consumer applications of AI taking off, big companies adopting it. So, like, you know, Apple and Siri was probably the first time I realized I was, um, I was going to say that's the first time I realized I was interacting with an AI. But then I just, I just popped into my head, was the Microsoft Paperclip an AI or was that? I wonder. Surely not. Surely not. Not old Clippy, whatever his name was. Yeah, Clippy. I, I wonder if they had any um, any machine learning algorithm in that. But something like Siri was the first time I, yeah. I really knew. Okay, this is something different. This is my my this computer and my phone is actively learning based on what I'm doing, which is yeah. kind of cr- would so blew my I- mind a little bit. I think that the yeah I don't I'm pretty sure the Clippy wasn't like I'll be corrected if someone can but I think that even the early series um they were the, I don't know if the AI was necessarily for the responses I think it was more around the voice recognition I think which would make me think mm. the Clippy wasn't like yeah, happy to be corrected okay. on that but obviously now it's around the responses and there's a bit of AI and actually how they generate the responses but I, I thought it was more on the voice recognition but yeah I mean now that like as an AI enabled as a lot of things are. But yeah, you are right. Yeah. There were some of the first like experiences that people had with AI, and they were everywhere. Yeah, I mean, that, that's interesting. I didn't appreciate that. Then it was more on the pattern recognition of your speech. Whereas now, I'm 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 sure whatever the current iteration of Siri is will definitely be doing that plus a hell of a lot of predicting what you're doing. You know, when it, yeah. when you get a, I get all these um these pop-ups now saying, oh, you know, um, do you want to use this app or your app recommendations, you know, based on the time of day or what you're doing? That's all That's all the predictive AI rather than just pattern yeah, recognition. Yeah. And I think um, on this like uh, AI-enabled kind of voice recognition and improvements on voice recognition, we're going to come to this later. It's all about the data set. And you know when like the original series came out and the original voice recognitions came out, there were so many like regional dialects in the UK that just weren't covered. Like I just have so many memories of my granddad who's from like the black country and has the thickest accent. Like I can barely understand him. I usually have to like uh, translate what he's saying for my um, for my partners. 
and I remember him trying to use Siri and it was just the funniest thing. He'd be playing like music that he'd never heard of when he'd be asking what the time was and they'd just be having like full-blown conversations. How, how do you think it was in Wales, man? It was a uh, struggle. Um, yeah. So, uh, so I guess that's kind of like from the 2010s onwards and, and maybe just to kind of summarize that decade and into, you know, where the current state. So we had this kind of, this real deep learning revolution and and deep learning is a kind of subset of artificial intelligence. If artificial intelligence is the, the big umbrella term for all these types of things, then deep learning is the, the subset that is talking about what's called neural networks and using our model, our best models for how the brain works. So you have all these neurons and connections between them um, uh, using what we understand of the brain to actually implement this artificial intelligence. Um, and that's where we've seen, you know, all the, the, the massive advances recently. Um, but but that, yeah, it's, it's a quite a different model and it's, it hasn't been around for quite as long. Yeah, and there's lots, of, um, we're not gonna go into, I think we'll have, have to have a separate episode, like just speaking about that specifically. Yeah. But there's lots of emphasis on like having these weighted nodes for how decisions are made and being able to fine tune things based on that. It's incredibly interesting. And I think like you're talking about like the deep learning aspect that really came to maybe fruition in the 2010s. Like a large part of this kind of, um, this big bang basically in, in AI was also the massive data sets that we've talked on previous episodes mm. about, web two companies kind of being these central bastions of vast amounts of data and in part the success of ais at this time in the early like the early 2010s and whatnot was because of these huge data sets that every that they now had access to to train these ai models and that is one of the reasons why they're so successful to date right yeah i think that's it's important to touch on that now as well just as a point of kind of uh, information is these the modern machine learning techniques are and deep learning techniques are very very dependent on data sets because um a lot of them are what's called supervised learning where you are mm -hmm. you're, you you have some model that like is mimicking the connections in the brain um at a high level and then what you do is you feed it data that you know is something so you feed it a picture of an apple and you tell it this is an apple but you mm -hmm. see what it predicts and then compare its prediction to what you said. So, you know, maybe it says it's a, it's a, it's a plum tomato and you go, well, it's not too far off, but it's uh, it's, it's pretty <laughs> close. And then based on how far off that guess was, it will improve. And so yeah. it's dependent on the quality of the data you give it, how much data you give it. Um, yeah, and then, exactly. Yeah. And then iterating it over time. That's kind of the model it uses. Yeah, exactly. Say you have like a, a hundred pictures of tomatoes and bananas. You take 20 of those pictures, put them to one side. That's the the, the kind of the testing set that you use. The end, the 80% of the photos you have, you'll tell it what a banana is, what a tomato is, and it will try and learn basically. And then you'll test that success on the 20 tomato photos that you kept to the side or something like that. But you, you explained it perfectly. Yeah. I mean, and, and it has applications, this kind of model, you know, this is used in uh, a lot in finance as well, right? Because a lot of trading online now is algorithmic um, and will use machine learning models because you can train your model, your your neural network on all the historical data on the stock market, for example. Mm. And then you can predict the next year or day or month or whatever and then as that data comes in you 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 not only see you know what well, maybe i made a lot of money off, off off the trades it told me to do but you you're continuously getting new data to improve the model as you go um is this how we become big we start to advise people on trading become yeah. crypto bro podcast not 
no financial advice. Not that I've not been doing anything <laughs> on the side. Um, Big disclaimer. But yeah, no, I can't get, this is one of the exciting things about AI is, you know, when you have a human and like the knowledge and training over the 20 years that makes them good at their job, um, they're there. But as soon as they leave the job, that, that knowledge to an extent is lost. But an AI just continually improving, continually learning. And you have like one of the, the you know exciting, sexy things about ChatGPT is there's like lots of parallel interfaces of people using ChatGPT, each asking questions, each inputting more data. And they're all collectively improving together because it's one central source of information that controls everything. And this is one of the powerful aspects of, of, of ChatGPT and these large language uh, models, right? Yeah, exactly. So what we've just seen now in you know late 2022 and early early this year is you've had the culmination of years and years of research in the actual deep learning technology. I mean, funnily enough, the, the, the paper that spawned all of ChatGPT came out in 2017. So it even took six years from that to see what we've got now. But it combined that with obtaining these huge, vast data sets from the internet that mm. you said. It's this model that was designed by Google in 2017 has been trained on essentially the internet and mm -hmm. is now being used for this this uh, to, to complete the story for this natural language processing and you know all these chatbot functionalities and that's what you know really took off and started the conversation and you know if you, if you look at the if you look at the um, venture capital market at the minute virtually all the attention has gone away from web3 and straight to ai because of the impact it's had in the last kind of six to nine months and i think you've bridged it nicely to the the web3 conversation and i think there's one thing that, I mean, one of the reasons I think that that happen, has happened, that the kind of the focus has shifted from Web3 to this AI is in well, large part to ChatGPT. Like mm -hmm. the technology, I've, I've spoke to a lot of people in the space and they're saying the technology hasn't changed that much. The actual model of ChatGPT isn't so different to a lot of the competitors. The thing that really changed and has really made this groundbreaking is the user experience, is how easy and tangible the benefits are to realize like people just pop onto an interface they ask a question say write an email and the, the benefit is instant like everyone can very easily understand how to use chat gpt after spending a few minutes on there and i think that is something we've said in previous episodes is is lacking in a way with web3 like what are the tangible benefits right now it's quite yeah. hard to realize for someone who's not heavily invested in the space or technologically savvy to understand what the web3 benefits are going to be right now yeah, exactly. I mean, ChatGPT was basically the consumer killer app for AI, or the, mm -hmm. the first one, the first consumer killer app, in the in the same way that you kind of had that with um, email in the early um, in the early days of Web two, and then social media. I mean, social media was probably the bigger killer app for for the internet for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. um, and now, Web uh, sorry, AI has had its killer app moment that, that everyone's been like, okay, all this technology that we've been hearing about in the background for a long time this has massive benefit for real people not just because yeah. it, it was adopted by businesses you know for years really it's been used by google microsoft ibm as you said for a long long time but there was no real consumer visible um mm -hmm. application for it and now it's got one and web3 is is still kind of waiting for that moment i think yeah and, and i think that there's two points on this the one point is as you've made that it's kind of overshadowed web three and a lot of maybe mm. the investment and the startups and focus is shifted from web three to ai but i think there's also kind of a growing maybe sect right now in the space who are thinking well you know the privacy concerns around ai 
how do we solve this? The identity concerns, the content generation, the spam concerns. There's a lot of issues that are going to come up because of the widespread adoption of AI. And I think mm -hmm. people are now starting to realize that Web3 is, is not just exciting. It's kind of critical to not combat, but support the, the kind of the AI focus and the AI development moving forward. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I guess this kind of brings us on to where we, we were going to discuss anyway, is the relationship between Web3 and AI and, and you know, mm -hmm. what is the landscape and, and what, you know, how, how do they relate to one another? And in my mind, Web3 is, is, again, it's a huge term, as we said, covers so many different things. And AI is almost like, if you think of it like a big circle, Web3 is this massive circle that encompasses a whole bunch of technologies and applications, use cases, benefits. And then AI is this other equally big, if not right now, probably bigger circle that has mm -hmm. a huge overlap with Web3. Like, you know, there are things in Web3 that don't need AI. There are things in AI that, you know, won't, won't touch Web3. But I think there's this huge um, intersection in the middle where Web3 and AI will be complementary technologies that basically support one another in various ways. Yeah, I completely agree. And like we've already mentioned some of the ways in which they will. It's interesting that I think maybe there's a lot of people in the space that don't agree with that, though, as well, that they've kind of, like we said earlier, like AI and Web3 has kind of been developed with their own goals in isolation and the camps haven't really overlapped too much. Maybe in recent years they have, but fundamentally the, the kind of the goals they had were very different, right? And I think most people think of AI or most people in the space think of AI as potentially a centralizing force, right? The centralizing power shift where, the, you know, you aggregate all this data into one space and the more data you've aggregated, the better your AI model. So it favors, you know, large organizations and other people, people will think that Web3 is the complete opposite of that uh, at a high level. It's about, mm. you know, decentralizing force. It, it kind of is designed to be decentralized, benefiting individuals, impairing individuals. And we kind of said that that's not always true, right? So I think a lot of people think of these two camps as being completely at odds. But I mean, in my mind right now, I see Web3 and like maybe blockchain fundamentally as well as a great interface for AI to flourish. And I think, you know, Web3 can put a lot of the, you know, provide a lot of the checks and balances that we need to keep AI controlled, but also very capable. And we could get like really deep into the technologies that enable that, like zero knowledge proofs and digital signatures and all these kind of things. But I think AI desperately needs these technologies to kind of be the success that it is going to be. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, they're very good points. Like I would definitely... I I completely agree with this idea that some people think they are averse to one another, and mm -hmm. you know, ChatGPT is this. As I've said it before on the podcast, but it's this kind of confounding example where um, we talk about data sovereignty quite a lot, but AI, the AI for ChatGPT was trained on all this data that we didn't consent to giving them on. Mm. Right, so it's kind of a big violation of that whole principle in a way. But I I completely agree that. Web3, I think, as you said, blockchain in particular and the properties of kind of a mutable proof of work blockchain, I think will be a big part of underpinning AI, making sure it's used securely and uh, ethically in the future. So, yeah, there, yeah. There, there's just a huge overlap of things to discuss there. I do, I do not understand like how how it's legal right now. Like the amount of times I've used ChatGPT and it's just pumping out like lines from someone else's work with no citation, no quote, and I put it out there. I'm like, am I in trouble? Is, is ChatGPT in trouble? Like someone is going to get a ping saying this guy has like copied your work, and like, I don't understand how that's legal right now. It's crazy, right? 
Yeah, I mean, I can't. I can only imagine what it's like to be a, a uni student right now. You know, oh doing my your undergrad God. and uh, and and you know, because again, that's a big problem. How much will you end up learning at university if you end up just copying or, or getting Huge the problem. AI to do these things? This is scary. Like, I am so glad that I did not have this ten years ago, or I would not have been able to like process any kind of creative thought ever. Like, I going through university, it's going to be. I think we're going to have generations to come if there aren't solutions to kind of caveat how we use AI right now that will just not be able to, you know, process natural language. We'll not be able to write essays. We'll not be able to formulate thoughts. It's all going to. It's mm. mainly going to be about just prompting things, right? And. Maybe people have like naysayers have said this about technology in the past, like the same, I bet like, it's a similar conversation to what we had about calculators like 20 years ago, right? It's going to be like ruined generations that people can't do mathematical, you know, computation in the head anymore. And, you know, I think we're fine. But it just seems like the fact that AI is moving at such a fast rate and is so accessible that kind of makes it slightly scarier, right? Yeah, we need to get a handle on it fast, I think. Me and you together. <laughs> <laughs> So why not have a little bit of AI inception and ask ChatGPT itself to tell us what it thinks about AI and Web3? That might be, uh, might be fun. So ChatGPT says, don't worry about AI. It's all fine, guys. Just carry on living your lives. <laughs> don't, don't question me. Don't question your master. <laughs> Skynet. Yeah, it's just shut down my computer. What? No. So I've asked ChatGPT to define artificial intelligence in the context of Web3. And ChatGPT says, AI in Web3 can be understood as intelligent systems that interact and operate within decentralized networks. These AI systems are not controlled by a single entity, but instead can be owned, trained, and improved by the community. They can be used to automate tasks, analyze, and predict trends in the blockchain data, and create intelligent decentralized applications. AI can also help in areas like content verification, maintaining privacy, and managing digital identities in a Web3 environment. Some of the interesting areas of overlap are decentralized machine learning, trust and transparency, data privacy and control, content generation, and decentralized AI marketplaces. Wow, a lot of overlap right there. Right there. We should definitely go into those in more detail, right? Yeah, I mean, it did a good job of putting the Web3 spin on it uh, as opposed to the centralized potential, you know, reality of AI right now. But um, <laughs> yeah, covers a lot of a lot of, uh, of the intersections. So we should definitely break some of these down. I mean, where, where should we start? Where's the best one to, to talk about, you think? I think that the easiest one to talk about is around decentralized like AI training and kind of the, the explainability and readability stuff, right? Like you were talking earlier about where does this data come from? You know, whose data is involved? Am I consenting to this data? And I think that's a really obvious low-hanging fruit that's kind of quite easy to understand is if, you know, we, we actually have the, the data sets that are, you know, hashed on chain or linked somehow on chain. And then I want to know what this AI has been, you know, kind of based on or built on, there's a very easy way to provably say, okay, this is the data set. Your data was in there. Your data wasn't in there. You know, this is bias. It's not bias and have that kind of readability and auditability in, in the actual AI models. Yeah, uh, I, I completely agree. And I think that is, again, it gets to the, the proposition, the value proposition of blockchain, you know, as a, as a, as a, uh, a mutable record keeping system that we talked about previously. And, in the context of AI, I think it's very much like, you know, you have these machine learning algorithms, 
They are making predictions. They're recommending decisions. They're producing content, um, especially the the big corporate ones, which are you know companies mm-hmm. that make like Alibaba. I think try and predict stock levels based on this. Mm-hmm. Um, it'll be used for self driving cars to turn right into a into a lane. You know that kind of stuff. Especially <laughs> like any any <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, exactly. So this is what I mean, right? That that is the that is the, the point of where the blockchain would come in is that if something goes wrong, you want to try and prove or, or, you know, whether or not it's the company that wants to prove it or the regulators want to interrogate this or, you know, Mm. uh, look inside the black box after the crash, so to speak, you want a a robust way of checking, okay, what went into this model? What was the actual outcome? Was the model uh, poorly chosen? Was it poorly designed? Is there liability on the company? Because again, People, we don't want to get comfortable with this idea of, oh, well, the AI did it. There's still always people who created the AI and programmed it a certain way. I'm so glad you phrased it in that way, because I think this is one of, in my mind, you know, Tesla and AI, smart driving cars, self-driving cars, all this kind of stuff. That was released in 2015. So they've had the capability since 2015. We're still not seeing them widely adopted on roads. Like the stats are suggesting that they're far safer than cars. But I think there's just a public perception that we want that accountability. I know that if Jack Davis crashes into Alec Burns, Jack Davis is going to be penalized. He's not going to be driving and we're safe, right? But if, say, a Tesla crashes into me, like, what does that mean? Does that mean every single Tesla has to be penalized? And I think that there's like this, even though it's like statistically doesn't make sense, there's just this kind of gut feeling, this public perception that we want someone to be accountable. And the, the kind of the black boxes that control things like driving cars makes people feel uncomfortable. They don't have someone they can blame because they're all working on the same model, right? And I think what you've just described is a very good way to actually get around that problem and kind of say, you know, we actually do have traceability. We do have auditability. We can provably say why something happened and actually yeah. kind of investigate the data set. Yeah. And another thing I'd add there is, the model for using the blockchain to, you know, as an evidence keeping tool and using it to prove what happened. Um, there's a lot of power in the attestation model. So you will attest mm. something happened at a certain time without wanting it to get re- revealed until much later. So in the context of a lot of these applications, the AI that's being used, the model that's being used by a company might be state of the art. They might have put millions into R&D to build their own model. Um, to train it you know it's it's the one of their prized possessions for these big companies like google tesla alibaba mm. and then at attestation is the model they can use to you know sh- keep evidence about what happened without revealing the actual information yeah, yeah. at the time because you, you don't want to give it away as a trade secret maybe but you can yeah. still then if if the regulators come knocking 10 years down the line if something goes wrong you still have the evidence so that's i think it's a powerful exemplar for why why we are such big proponents of blockchain attestation in general right yeah definitely and i think you kind of touched on something else there as well it's the data privacy aspect i want to know that my data maybe isn't being used for certain ai models right now it could be on the internet anyone can take it anyone can use it we've already raised that this is a problem like there's kind of no accountability there. I have no idea where this data is coming from or who's using mm. my data potentially. But when we move to this kind of this more, you know, data sovereignty that we've talked about in previous episodes where I own my data and I permission people to use and access that data, 
I want to be able to choose which AI model, if I do want any AI, AI model at all to use my data, can use it. You know, there should be some monetization. Why would I let someone use my data unless yeah. there's a, a benefit to me? And I think this also comes back to that there's, there's more technologies that feed into this. Like there's a thing about, that, about inference, right? You know, I have my data that corresponds to me. AI doesn't need all my data necessarily. If it just needs the data that, you know, I buy black shirts or something like that, that's, I can just selectively reveal that fact that an authenticated mm. person, which is me, is owning this black shirt and that AI mod, that's all it needs. It doesn't need the fact that I'm Alec Burns, I live here, I'm this this many years old. And yeah, I think that's it's anonymized. Exactly. I think that's something yeah. that's going to become more prevalent in the space. And that, that fits into the whole data sovereignty, selective disclosure stuff that we've talked about previously, is that we don't mm -hmm. have to reveal everything about ourselves. We can just give it a little bit of data that authenticates it with our identity, and then it can be on its way and be happy, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, and I think like talking about the identity piece brings up a whole other can of worms, because you know you mentioned using ChatGPT and wondering, okay, well, what, the, what are the implications on copyright and, and use of, you know, how, how much of this response has been generated from someone else's work. And if you're a content creator right now, if you're, if you're a digital marketer, if you create logos for a, for, for a business, I mean, that's one of the areas where I, I think ha will have to shift and change, right? Because you have these models that can produce photorealistic images, you know, you don't need to hire a model anymore to show off your, your your clothes if you're a brand you can just put it through an ai and it's it's really scary how good they are. i mean i don't know if you saw the uh <laughs> the one where they they showed all the the big personalities like the elon musk i think donald trump mm. uh jeff oh, bezos yeah. and it showed them all as if they were in a third world country and it's scary how how realistic these pictures look right so if you're if you're making money if your job and livelihood is in content creation especially things like copywriting uh you know, ChatGPT is completely disrupting that now. And yeah. blockchain and Web3 is going to be huge for proving uh, proving provenance that you did create something, that it wasn't created yeah. from an AI and preserving your copyrights over what you actually did create, which, you know, if, if you are a creator. It's interesting you kind of, you phrased it like that, that you said, you know, that it's provenance that it wasn't an AI that generated it. I really believe in the, the Web3 model that we're pushing towards that AI will be a content generator and people will want to support mm. AI. And I think that this whole provenance, like kind of piece that you're talking about, it's not just like distinction between a human and AI. It is just authenticity. Some people will uh, in the future follow AI accounts. They will want content generated to AI. It's about just linking that created content to the creator of that content. It's not about human versus non-human. We'll kind of think about it like that right now. And I think that's in part because of the Web2 model of spam, right? When we think of like mm. bots, we think spam and we think in Web2 and like there's just, it's annoying. It's There's no benefit to it. But now we're starting to see AI as useful content generation. And I think we're going to see this transition from like user-generated content in Web2 to a lot more AI-generated content in Web3. Yeah, I think I partially agree. Like I push back slightly in that, you know, I I'm kind of will will always favor the human, right? Despite what we think of me, um, and I think I I do agree. We we will AI for generating content is fine, and it will be used plenty in the future for, for as a productive, you know, a productive thing. But I'm in favor of protecting the 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 real humans in the system first, and you know, people. 
blockchain and web3 giving people the tools to prove that they did make something before and some ai uh made a similar der derivative version of it i think is crucial i think you know i'm a big fan of of um Humans. intellectual property law right <laughs> <laughs> well yeah and human but the the idea that you own your intellectual property i think is a really fundamental part of society you know that you 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 own your own ideas and the product of your your own mind so giving people tools to actually prove this and again monetize it if 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 the if the opportunity arises i think is huge so again tokenizing things is is one is one aspect but then just providing evidence that you created something linking that to your identity um mm. you know i actually think in the world where ai is doing more content creation m making that link between the inputs you know maybe it did use my photo as input to this then maybe there's a royalty model in there that i'm quite happy with yeah you know, and, I, and i'm willing if it pays me a little bit of money for that that's great um but yeah you know we need the, the tooling i think the tooling exists for a lot of this but it, it needs to be built out in web3 a bit more and i get what is your concern right now that the kind of the the state of play in ai right now is that it's an aggregator right and in the simplest of terms it just averages everything out there into the most accurate into the most probabilistic answer right so you're thinking whenever we say content generation from an ai it means it's using other people's intellectual property and merging them to create the answer is that your problem that you're kind of yeah partly and i i also think um it, 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 it's going to be because when we when we talk about the large language models, what mm. you can do is, for example, the prompt you give it. A lot of people will use it like question and answer because it's a chat box. Mm -hmm. so you'll say, oh, yeah, you know, uh, what do I do if I've got this lump on my arm or something like that? But the other way you can do it is you can actually provide input data as the prompt. So you could say mm -hmm. like I've seen things like this that say um, uh, rewrite uh rewrite shakespeare in the style of a Donald oh, yeah. trump right I, i've done that <laughs> well you've done that exactly i don't know what, I think, what for i think i did rewrite rewrite shakespeare as snoop dogg or something like that <laughs> yeah but this is i think it's a big like the, the capability of that is it's it's funny it's you know it can be cool for some things but that is a big problem because you can instruct it to essentially uh you can, you know, not not just that kind of funny example, but say, okay, take this example and take this take this input blog. Say I've written a blog. You could say mm -hmm. write a similar blog with certain changes, and it's AI has lowered the barrier to doing that kind of thing. And the person who did right, the yeah. initial work is is the one who loses out there. So I think being able to prove who did the initial work is important. Yeah. No, I get that. I think like we're in the era of disinformation right now. And I think AI is just going to propagate that. I think like this kind of stuff is particularly scary around like mm. um, election years and around politics because, you know, it's that that's so polarizing and, and that kind of stuff is so important. And I think that the technology right now isn't there to have like these authenticated. Well, sorry, the technology does exist to authenticate videos. So I know that if there's a video that comes from, say, the prime minister or the president, depending on what country you're listening in from right now, that it comes from that person. You know, we can very, I say very easily, but we can simply to an extent apply digital signature schemes, you know, public key infrastructures, all these, you know, sexy tech words to ensure that the video is authentic and comes from the keys of the president, for example, right? But yeah. there's no platforms that widely adopt that. There's no social media. I mean, 
Twitter doesn't do that right now. Very easy to push disinformation on Twitter. I can, you know, a lot of these videos that I'm seeing, like the kind of, you know, make Donald Trump do a rap to this. Like it's just everywhere on Twitter. It's very difficult to authenticate whether that comes from Donald Trump or not. Yeah. And I think this is one of the big ways in which Web3 is going to help kind of caveat and control AI, especially around misinformation, right? Around yeah. linking the, the kind of the source of the information to the content that's actually being generated and shown publicly. Yeah, I, I want to build on that in a second, but it has just a really like kind of important example of what I was saying has just come to mind. So I don't know if you've seen the the voice, the, the, the voice uh, AI models that can take you know, a few songs from a, an artist like a Kanye West, I think was the mm. example I saw. And then it can, it can, it can spit out new audio of Kanye West. Yeah, yeah. It sounds just like him singing new lyrics. I think I first saw it because some artist actually used it in a DJ set. And, they, and it, it, I think it was Eminem. I think it was. Was it Eminem or John Mayer or something like that? Yeah, I th I've seen it as well. I know what you're talking yeah. about. Yeah. So I think it, the, the one was, it was Eminem. And that, Okay, the whole consent problem is big there. It's going to become so much worse when people start, and I think they already have, doing it for people who aren't you know, alive anymore and generating new works based on what they did when they were alive. There's no way you can obtain consent for that, and I think that is that particularly scares me. Um, but yeah, not to, be all, not to be all doom and gloom. And I, when I wanted to build on your, your last point um, while we're still there, so on the misinformation, right? Mm. Every, we had a previous episode where we talked about social media and micropayments. And I think mm. everything we said there applies here, but 10 times over. So using micropayments, that being a big part of how Web3 can help the problems that might be being caused by AI, you know, increasing the cost to posting, as we described, mm. um, to, to increase the barrier to, to spam and, and bots, you know you just said AI has increased the problem 10 times over. So the need mm. for the micropayment solution, I think is just that much bigger. But like, I think there's a difference between the spam we see right now in web two and what we're going to see in AI, like in your kind of example, where you're talking about, you know, spam sending a million emails, a million emails out to a million different people. Yeah. It's obvious how micropayments can get around that you make, you charge them a fraction of a penny for every email they send and it no longer becomes economical to, to have that kind of mm. model. But when an AI bot creates one video that people want to see and they love and they engage with, how does micropayments get around that? So, yeah, I, I don't see it specifically solving that aspect okay. of the problem. I see it solving the part of the problem to do with, you know, spinning up a thousand fake accounts because historically, yeah, you can spin up a thousand fake accounts. It can be or a million fake accounts, let's say. And, mm. you know, we've all seen them. You can detect when, you know, when they just say, buy my token or something. That They, they, all, say, they all tend to be crypto annoyingly as well. <laughs> but they all tend to be, you'd see, I post something and then you get a hundred people underneath saying, buy this thing. But um, no, <laughs> I, I, I see just that basic idea, yeah, of raising the cost of interacting as cutting out, because the, because the bots themselves will look more sophisticated now. It'll be much yeah. harder to tell so the importance of solving that problem using that method, I think, is more important. But yeah, I don't, I don't, I agree with you. If AI creates content that's really great, I mean, it's not necessarily a problem to solve. But I don't see micropayments necessarily changing anything there. Well, well yeah, and we kind of we haven't had an episode on it. We're definitely going to have an episode on it. The way to get around that, I believe, is digital identity, right? If we we're going to start to see social media platforms, I believe, where 
to get on that social media platform. It's not just a case of creating a, a username and password that can be done yeah. very easily. It's a case of you having a self-sovereign identity, an identity that is intrinsically linked to your real world identity. It's not like you need to share that with everyone, but it's just a passport or something like that. You go through a KYC, which is to know your customer, where a service provider will say, yeah, this person is who they say there are. Their phone now links to their identity so they can create one social media account on this platform. And then you know anyone that's on that platform is linked to a real world person, right? And I think that we're going to start, I really believe that we'll see social media platforms that start to instigate that. And I think, you know, what this also benefits as well is accountability. You see, like, there's a mm. lot of hate, a lot of hate speech, a lot of really nasty stuff that goes on on social media, some of it from bots, some of it from humans as well, right? Some of it from mm. real, real world people. And the point is, there's very, it's very difficult to have that accountability. Sure, you can report someone, for, you know, pushing across racism or hate speech or something like this, and their account gets closed down. They spin up another one the next day. Like, there really needs to be accountability in social media platforms. And I think that, that that's quite important. And we will see a market for that, I believe, in the future. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree. I, I, I think digital identity will definitely be a big part of the solution to the especially the social media problem although i yeah we we need there we definitely need a full episode on this because again even in social media i think there are there are some edge cases i've seen discussion about you know if you if you had if you made it necessary to uh disclose you know proper digital identity in every case there are there are small things that will slip through the cracks there are uh you know there are edge cases to consider but i think that's that's for another episode right i think the the solution will will definitely involve that thank you for listening to the first part of this conversation on ai and web3 join us next time to hear the rest Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Untangling Web3, produced by Emma Camilleri. Don't forget to send us your thoughts, questions and comments on social media. And be sure to follow us on your favourite podcast provider to catch the next episode. See you next time to untangle a little bit more of Web3. The views we express here are our own and do not reflect the views of our employers.